Good morning. So good to see all of your beautiful faces here this morning. And uh, if you thought I was talking about the person next to you, I was, but um, that's okay. You're, you too. I'm glad you're here too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's so good to have you guys here. We're going to continue our series, New Life. And we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. So open up your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, if you have a phone, you can download a, a Bible app. There's a bunch of free ones out there and, uh, and follow along that way. We will put the scripture on the screen as well. Um, before we dig into God's word this morning, uh, let's ask him to enlighten our minds and, and prepare our hearts for, for the message today. Let's bow our heads and do that. Dear God, you are a holy God. You are righteous. And Lord, we come before you uh, this morning seeking to know you, to love you, to be loved by you. And Lord, as we look at this letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth, God, help our minds to understand well what is in the text, what you would have for us. But Lord, prepare us, that our hearts would embrace it, that that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted where necessary, that we would be comforted where needed by your word and by your love for us. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Stephen Joseph is a writer for Psychology Today. He's a PhD psychologist, and uh, he... He was writing about what it means to live the authentic life. And he came up with with three things that he said, these are the three things that you should do if you want to have an authentic life. And, And so here's number one. Number one is this. To be authentic, we need to be able to face up to the truth about ourselves, no matter how unpleasant we might find it. Number two is this. The authentic person will not let others blind them to their own truth or let others bully them into, their, into taking a position they don't agree with. And number three is authenticity requires us to be able to overcome our desire to fit in and be part of the crowd. Now, I read these three things out of psychology today, which is not what we preach out of, just so you know. All right, that's not our, that's not our text that we follow. As a matter of fact, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that a couple of things he said isn't quite right. And, and we, but it's not bad considering some of the stuff we sometimes get out of publications like Psychology Today. Not that it's all bad, but we obviously have to have a, a filter whenever we read anything, really. And, uh, and as I was reading this, I was like, you know, the, that's, it's really not, not too bad. The first one, you know, to be able to face up to the truth about yourself, what, no matter how unpleasant, like, I think that's true, right? We need to be able to, to see and to understand and to know the truth about ourselves and to face that. Uh, with, with, with honesty, right? If we're going to live an authentic life, like that one's pretty good. The second one, the authentic person will not let others blind them to their own truth. Now, hold on a second here. We got we to gotta pump the brakes on that one a little bit. When we, when we begin to talk about truth, we don't own truth. You don't, you don't have a truth and I have a truth. Like that's not how it works. Like I don't, I don't get to go around and going, well, this is my truth. That, that might be your truth, but this is my truth. I mean, and this is maybe the easiest way to explain this is this, that when we go driving down the road, and for those of us, hopefully, who have a license and are licensed drivers and have, have received the proper training, we don't go driving down the road and just go, well, my truth is that I don't have to pay any attention to the red lights. I'm just going to blow through all the intersections, not pay any attention to the red lights. And my truth is that I'm just not going to get in an accident. That's just how it's going to work, right? Like, you don't get that truth. If you start doing that and you just blow through every intersection, whether it's red or green or, or, or yellow, and, and you just don't pay any attention, you just blow through the intersection, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get in an accident, or at a minimum, you're going to cause an accident, right? Like, you don't get your own truth with that. 
See, truth is that which reflects reality. In other words, if something is real, if this is really the way things are, then a true statement will reflect the way things really are. That's what truth is. We don't get to own truth. We don't get to design truth. We don't get to invent truth. We can discover truth. But it's not something that each one of us makes, right? It's, it's, it's not something we, we own. So you don't get to have your own truth. So he gets that wrong. But then number three is authentic, authenticity requires us to be able to overcome our desire to fit in and be part of the crowd. I think that one's pretty good too. Like two out of three, he does pretty good. The, the first one, the last one, pretty good. The second one, maybe he struggles with a little bit. But we begin to think about this idea of what an authentic life really is. And the world has an idea of what authenticity means. Authenticity often is described using this phrase, and I'll start it and let's see if you guys can finish it, right? Be true to yourself, right? Be true to yourself. That's what the world tells us authenticity is. Be true to yourself. But there's a problem with that statement, because when we say that, what does that do? That says, we, myself, I, me, myself, and I, I am the triune God of the universe, and that my standards are what goes. And that if I'm going to live an authentic life, that all I have to do is live up to my standards, to the way I am. And so what that has led to is an embracing of all things. It's led to a culture that says, just embrace everything about you, good, bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter. Just embrace it. As a matter of fact, there is no ugly and there is no bad. There's only good, and that is the authentic you. That's what the world tells us. But that's not what the Bible tells us. That's not what Scripture tells us. As a matter of fact, if you even try to live that out in any kind of coherent way, you run into all kinds of troubles because you and I both know that we can look at things in our lives and go, wow, if that's authentically me, I don't want to be authentically me. Decisions I've made, things I've said, right? You ever said something, and halfway through saying it, you go, man, I shouldn't say this. Oops, I, and, then, and then by the time you're done with the sentence, you're, oops, I shouldn't have said that. You ever done that? Come on, raise your hand if you've ever, right? Try public speaking for a while, okay? Like, I, I do have some compassion for, for politicians, especially ones that haven't done a lot of public speaking and they become a politician. All of a sudden, they're in front of microphones and cameras all the time. Because if you do enough public speaking of any kind, you inevitably say something you shouldn't say. One time in seminary, I was presenting a paper, and I said a curse word in the middle of my paper. And I, I just kept going like I didn't say it. You know, I'm just like, I just pretended it didn't happen. But I could tell by several of the faces of the class. And there, it, it, wasn't, it, it was one of those things where you start with a certain letter and you end with another letter because you took two words and, try, and accidentally combined them. It was kind of one of those deals. But I saw by the people in the room that they all heard it. As a matter of fact, several of them came up to me and go, Hey, John, do you know what you said in there? <laughs> like, yeah, I knew when I said it, but I was hoping you guys didn't notice, right? Like, like, we say things, and all of a sudden it's... So I'm just telling you that if, 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 if what it means to be authentically me is to embrace everything about me, then I'm not sure that I want to be authentically me. You can't coherently live that out in any real kind of way that everybody, the authentic life is just embracing everything about yourself, no matter what it is. But that's what the world tells us. But the Bible has a different view of what the authentic life is. It gives us a very different 
picture. And, and authentic, authenticity is, is valued highly in our culture, right? It's valued highly in our culture. And, and, uh, and it, certainly, it, it certainly is for Paul. He values it highly, but he comes at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Amen. And the world's view of authenticity is often skewed. And it's fundamentally flawed. The truth about ourselves and about the world we live in is true not because we say it is, because we own it, or because we embrace it. Truth is simply that which is real, whether we like it or not. That's what truth is. As a matter of fact, I had a psychology professor in my undergrad. And I can't remember. I wish my wife was here. She's in Minnesota. But she would remind me of his name because she had him too. And, uh, and he said, he was the first one I ever heard say this phrase, and I've heard it many times from many people since. But he would say, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. If there's anyone who owns truth, it's God, but nobody else. Nobody else outside of God can own truth. And I've heard it many times since then. Culture's view of authenticity is flawed, though, right? It, puts, it takes the person, the individual, and puts them on the throne and says, you are the standard bearer, the standard maker of all that is good. But Paul had a little bit of a different perspective. As a matter of fact, he wrote uh, a letter to a young pastor who was inexperienced. And in this letter, Paul was offering advice on how to deal with certain situations and the kind of character and those kinds of things that this young pastor should have. And he says to the young pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now the first part of that is this, this saying. It, it doesn't sound like Paul made it up. It wasn't his saying, but it was a trustworthy saying. It was a good saying. Perhaps Paul heard it somewhere else and he's passing it on to this young pastor, Right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but then he makes this editorial comment at the end of whom I am the worst. See, Paul lived an authentic life. He knew the reality that existed, and he accepted it as it really was. He understood his own sin and his own fallenness. He knew he needed grace. In the passage we're looking at in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he reminds us of that grace that God gives us. And he says this, starting in verse 1, he says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We have a saying around here. See if you guys know it. It's kind of a tagline that we, we say. Johnny will say it sometimes. I'll say it sometimes. So again, I'll start it and see if you guys can fish. I know you guys, you're like, I didn't know I was getting a pop quiz in church this morning. John, you, you got to give me preparation time for these things, right? That's okay. It's okay to cheat with your neighbors, okay? This is, it's, it's not cheating if you ask or whatever. But we have this tagline, we often say it around here, and I'll say the first half, you say the second half, right? Real grace, oh my goodness, real grace for real living, there we go. Real grace for real living, real grace for real living, right? Real life requires real grace, that's, that's the whole point, that's why we say that, because we know 
that the life we live now, here in the body, right, in this body, this life is filled with troubles. We know that we're fallen. We know that we have sin in our life. We know that sin has influenced us and affected us. We know that that's a reality. It's a reality for me, and it's a reality for you. And it's a reality for everybody outside of these walls. It's just a reality. And so we have this phrase, and I flipped it for this, right? Real life requires real grace, but we often say real grace for real living because real life is hard and it needs grace. We need grace. And Paul understood that reality, the truth that he faced along with everything else. Certainly those in Corinth and certainly each one of us is that we are fallen people in a fallen world. For us, real life means living in a world that is far far from ideal. Ideal isn't even within sight in the world we live in. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm convinced that so many of the plans and schemes, and I use schemes even in a positive sense there, these ideas that we can, we can, we can bring the world into this ideal existence, this utopia that through, through the ingenuity of the human mind, that we can create pro, enough programs. And again, I'm not against programs, but the idea that, that we can just do this program or we can do that program or we can, we can accomplish this by this kind of ingenuity or that kind of ingenuity. And if we just work hard enough as humans that we can bring into existence this ideal world, this utopia, it's just a misunderstanding of the reality that we face and the impact that sin has had on our world. I'm not saying we don't do everything we can to make the world as good as we can. As a matter of fact, I think God commands us to do that. But we should understand the reality of the world that we live in. And it's fallen. And sin has influenced it. Whether it is our sin or the impact of someone else's sin, real life requires real grace. And Paul urges those in Corinth not to receive God's grace in vain. That's an interesting phrase as Paul starts out with that. He, he tells them, hey, don't receive God's grace in vain. And I, and I began to think about that. Okay, what does that mean to receive something in vain? And I thought about it, and I looked up dictionary words, and looked up the original language, and all this stuff. And here's, here's kind of my definition as I compiled my, my thought about what it means to receive something in vain. To receive something in vain is to receive it in a way that diminishes or completely nullifies the impact or intended result. So I'm going to say that again. To receive something in vain is to receive it in a way that diminishes or completely nullifies the impact or intended result. And Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 49 in this text, and he, he, goes, he quotes it from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he, and he quotes it, and, he, and he's going back to Isaiah, and, and, and Isaiah in Isaiah in, in chapter 49, what Isaiah is doing is he's kind of presenting his credentials to Israel and saying, look, God has called me to this for this purpose. And my purpose, and, and I'll use Paul's words in the last chapter here and apply them to Isaiah, but God's purpose for Isaiah was to call the Jewish people to God and, so that they would reconcile themselves to God so that they could then be a light in the world and carry the ministry of reconciliation to the world. And if that sounds familiar, and you were here last week, it should. 
Because that's what Paul was talking about in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He was talking about, we must be reconciled to God. And he was telling Corinth, you must be reconciled to God so that you can carry the ministry of reconciliation to the world. And in essence, that's what Isaiah is called to do in chapter 49. And so Paul references back to Isaiah and says, that's what Isaiah was called to. And Paul, in essence, is saying, I'm called to the same thing for the church here and now in the new covenant. That I'm calling you to reconciliation with God so that you can then carry that reconciliation to others. God called Paul to, this church, to the church in Corinth. And they, they are to carry that. Now here's the thing, as we think about this and we recognize that real life requires real grace and we begin to think about that, it's not just my life that requires real grace. It's not just your life that requires real grace but it's all the people outside these walls too right their life requires real grace see when we walk around this world and this is my prayer for myself and for all of us this is my prayer that when we walk around this world and we see other people in this world that we will be burdened burdened by the realization that they may not know the grace of Jesus Christ. They often know something's wrong. They can identify, they look at the world as a matter of fact. I mean, how, how often do we get very far into the day without hearing somebody complain about the way the world is? Right? It doesn't take very long. I mean, if you, if you listen to talk radio, just turn that on for 30 seconds. And somebody's complaining about the way the world is. There's, this, is this is what's wrong with the world. If you don't listen to talk radio, listen to a podcast, it doesn't even have to be a Christian podcast, any podcast of anybody. And pretty soon they're talking about all the things that are wrong with the world. We recognize, everybody recognizes there's something wrong in the world. And it should burden us as we look at the world. They don't always get it right what is wrong with the world, but they know something's wrong with the world. And that should burden us. It should weigh heavy on our hearts because just as we need the grace of Jesus Christ, so do they. They need the grace of Jesus Christ. So it was Isaiah bringing that message to Israel. Then it was Paul bringing that message to Corinth. Who's next in line? Well, you are. And I am. We're next in line too. You see, we have received, I hope, that we have received the grace of Jesus Christ through the blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, that we have been impacted by that, that we've been influenced by that. And now it is our job to carry the ministry of reconciliation in the world because real life requires real grace, and we know what real grace is. We have the message of truth, the gospel, the message of grace. Now it is incumbent upon us to carry that. So I have a challenge. Because Paul tells the church in Corinth, right? He says, make sure that when you receive God's grace, you don't receive it in what? In vain. Well, my challenge to you and to myself is this. You have received God's grace, so make sure that you do not receive it in vain. What would that look like? Well, receiving it in vain would be receiving it in a way that either mitigates or completely demolishes the impact it's supposed to have on our life and on the, on the lives of those around us. So here's my challenge. You ready? Have one conversation 
with one person who is not a Christian this week about, God, about the grace of God. One conversation with someone who is not a follower of Jesus about the grace of God this week. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are going, that's no big deal. I do that every week. Okay. Maybe your challenge needs to be a little bit more significant. You, you between you and God, if, if, if you look at this and go, well, this is easy. I do this all the time. Then maybe your challenge need to be, needs to be a little bit more significant. Maybe you need to think, maybe I need to challenge somebody I've, I've had conversations with to actually receive the grace of Christ, to receive Jesus as their Savior, to receive through faith, the gift of salvation. Maybe that needs to be your challenge. But if, if, if you, you've been not having those conversations, that's not something you commonly do. How about this week? It doesn't have to be complicated. I'm not asking you to grab a blowhorn, bring it to church, you know, gr- climb up. I was going to climb up on something, but everything looks like it'll break. So I won't climb up on it. But you don't have to climb up on your desk, sit in your cubicle, and get your blowhorn and go, hey, everybody, I, I've got to talk to you about God's grace. That's not what I'm asking you to do. Not asking you to do that. I'm not asking you to 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 make a fool out of yourself. I'm not asking you to be whatever it is you view as that that evangelism guy or gal who's kind of like in your face and shoving stuff down your throat. I'm not asking you to do that. I just want you to have a conversation. Just a conversation. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to tell them, "Hey, you need this." You don't even have to do that. It can be something as simple as as, as well. You know, I. I just saw God work in my life in this really amazing way. Can I tell you about it? It's really cool. And then you just tell him something that God did in your life. That's it. it it's super simple. You know what? Nobody's going to put you down for it. Maybe, maybe you'll find somebody. Like, but I doubt it. I mean, you're going to have to like really work hard to find somebody that's going to be like, I can't believe you told me that God was good to you. Oh my goodness, what an evil person you are. Like, that's not going to happen. It's just not. But we walk around the world as if we are on eggshells. Can I just tell you something? That our feet are on the firm ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's everybody else who's on eggshells. And we need to help them off. We've got it all backwards. We've flipped it in our head. This is my challenge to you. One conversation with one person who's not a believer in Jesus Christ about the grace of God that you've experienced in your life. That's it, one this week. Here's what I want you to do. Not only do I want you to have that conversation, here's what I want you to pull out your phone right now. Go ahead, come on, everybody grab your phone. Come on, grab your phone. Some of you are going, I, my phone? I don't even carry my phone. Okay, so here's what you do. I started this last service, so I'm gonna finish it later because I don't wanna sit up here and type while I talk to you, okay? I want you on Tuesday of this week, I want you to make an appointment on your calendar. So open your calendar, go to Tuesday, type in there, conversation about grace, and then make sure it's set to remind you. Like, I, when I do it on my phone, it doesn't remind me. When I do it on my computer, it reminds me of stuff. So you got to, the, the option's there. You can tell it to remind you. So I want it to remind you on Tuesday that you're supposed to have a conversation with somebody this week about God's grace. Make sure it's set to remind you. This is real, guys. We don't come to church so that we can hear a message and then totally ignore it the rest of the week. Otherwise, I don't know why I'm spending so much time working on these messages, okay? The idea is that you leave this place and that you actually allow the message to impact you. One person, that's it, one person. That's my challenge. And then, once you do it, will you do me a favor? Will you email me and tell me about it? You can tell me to keep it confidential if you want, but if you don't tell me to keep it confidential, I might share it, okay? Fair warning, all right? 
I'm just, just telling you. So keep this quiet, John. Okay, I'll keep it quiet, right? But I want to hear about it. I want to hear about the conversation that you had. That's my challenge this week, right? But here's the thing. Real life does require real, gra- real grace. And the only place to find real grace is in Jesus Christ. That's the only place to find real grace. It's in Jesus. But God's grace in our lives does not guarantee the absence of hardship. And Paul knew this, and he recognizes this as well. As a matter of fact, starting in verse 3 of that same chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then Paul goes on one of his list rants. He does this in other places, like Romans 12, he does this. And honestly, it frustrates me because it's so hard to preach on these texts when he does that because it's like 17 sermons combined into one little list, which you don't get all of that today. But he says this, In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, in hunger, in purity, and understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet ma- making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. In other words, every, every one of those words and those, those little phrases, I could do a sermon on each one. So what's that, like 17 of them or something? I don't know. I'm just making up the number. I didn't count them. But, but it's a lot, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to condense this and kind of break this down for you in a different way. Here's, here's Paul's concern is that he would not be a stumbling block, but that his ministry would commend the, him to those in Corinth. Now here's the thing you've got to understand about the culture in Corinth, right? Corinth, if you remember, uh, if you go back and, and you remember what we talked about that first sermon, Corinth was, was this, this city that was... Uh, pretty affluent for that day and that time, right? There were, there were more wealthy people there than, than most, most cities, and there was a lot of poverty in the first century, far more than we experience in today, especially in, in the United States and other, other Western countries. But there was still, in, in Corinth, compared to a lot of other cities, there was more wealth and those kinds of things, and there was more opportunity for wealth. And so it attracted a lot of people, a lot of former slaves actually would go there, freed slaves, and they would start their own businesses and, and these kinds of things. And so there was a lot of opportunity and people coming from all over the place. And their idea of success was this, that you would have wealth, that you would avoid suffering, and that you would live a life of ease. That was their, if you did those things, then you would have status, you would have success. They would look at you and go, wow, that's amazing. You're great. You're, you're this successful person. And then maybe they'd do their little TED Talk, and all of a sudden they'd be writing their own little self-help books or whatever they did, you know, at that time, right? I know they didn't have internet and TED Talks and those kind of things. But the idea is this, that that, that was viewed as success, and you would, you would have status. As a matter of fact, it sounds a lot like, like modern-day United States, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, we look at people, and, and success is measured 
uh, by how much you have and, 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 and how much status you have and, and those kinds of things. Or maybe it's, it's shifting a little bit. Now it's likes on Facebook or friends on Facebook or followers on Twitter or Instagram or, or, or YouTube or whatever. It's all these different things. And if you can build this audience, it almost seems like we have a, a culture of, of consumerism of media now that's opened up this whole new platform. You don't have to do anything productive in life. You just got to get a lot of followers and then monetize it. Like that's, that's kind of the new, the new uh, way to be successful, right? Get, be famous and get a lot of followers. Well, that was kind of similar in Corinth and it's kind of similar today. And so there was this idea that if you experience a lot of suffering, a lot of affliction, a lot of hardship in your life, and especially if you were poor and you experienced all these things, in that case, then you were not successful. And so here come Paul's critics in, in and, right, in Corinth, and, and, and they come and they say, well, look at Paul, man, he's been beaten, he's been thrown in prison, he's all these things, like, he's got this thorn in the flesh thing that's going on, and, and, and shipwrecked, and all this stuff, right, like, Paul's experienced all these hardship, hardships, and all this affliction, that's not success, and so they're questioning the integrity of Paul's ministry because he's not living the health and the wealth kind of gospel because he's actually experiencing affliction and hardship and difficulty in his life. And so they go, see, because of that, he doesn't have status. We shouldn't listen to him. He's not successful. He is not the one that you guys should be listening to. And that's what his critics are saying. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul comes along and he, and he writes this letter to Corinth, to Corinth and he's, he's defending himself, right? But what's interesting about how he defends himself, he doesn't go, oh, no, 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 look, here's how I'm successful in your, in your eyes. He doesn't accept their standards. That's the problem that we often face. We accept other people's standards. But Paul has a different standard. He has a different approach to this. As a matter of fact, what Paul basically says is this, real life requires real perseverance. Real life requires real perseverance. Paul flips this faulty worldview on its head, and instead of trying to meet the faulty standards of his critics, he flips them. And he says, no, 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 no. What legitimizes my ministry is the fact that I endure. The fact that I persevere in the midst of the affliction. The the fact that I suffer the beatings. The fact that I go to jail, the fact that I stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that I'm unwilling to relent from preaching the good news of God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. My ministry is legitimized not by your standards because your standards are faulty. My ministry, Paul says, is legitimized because I go through these sufferings. And he he lists three different kinds of sufferings in, in about nine descriptions there. General suffering, suffering inflicted by others, and then even suffering from self-discipline. And he basically says, I endure all of these things, whether it's just general stuff, stuff other people have done, and I suffer at the consequences of that, or simply the things that I do to myself, sleepless nights and hard work and and those kinds of things, and, and those can cause a different kind of suffering as well. And I endure those things. I persevere those things. For what? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of a righteous and authentic life. But here's the thing. Real life includes suffering, but God does not leave us in the midst of that suffering. Paul's righteousness is his greatest weapon. And he says that in the text. He talks about the weapon of righteousness. And that's his, that's his weapon, right? As a matter of fact, I would tell you this, the righteous life 
is the authentic life. You want to know what an authentic life is? It's the righteous life. It's not this idea that I just embrace everything about myself. I know myself too well. Sometimes I'm not who I want to be. And Paul recognizes that and knows that. And, and there's this righteous life that is his weapon, that's the authentic life. The righteous life is the authentic life. It may come with suffering, but it, but it, is, it is Paul's endurance in the midst of suffering, his weapon of righteousness, powered by, as he references in the text, the Holy Spirit that legitimizes his ministry. It's those three things. The endurance in the midst of suffering, the weapon of righteousness and righteousness in his life, and the power by the Holy Spirit in his life. Those are the things that legitimizes his ministry. See, our ministry, our life in Christ, it's not legitimized by the world's standards. We need to stop that. We do that all the time. We walk out of this place, and I do it too, and I, I, I hate it when I do it. We, we, try to, we try to tell the world how we live up to their standards, but why would we do that? Because their standards are wrong. That's not what Paul does. He doesn't go, oh, I'm going to live up to your standards. He says, I'm going to live up to God's standards. I'm going to live the, the authentic life of righteousness that's found in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how I'm going to live. And because of those things, my ministry, my faith is legitimized. So here's the challenge for you. When you go into the world, and you be aware, be self-aware enough to recognize when you start to follow the world's ideas about how you should be, how you should live, what you should do. And then stop it and say, no, I will live up to God's standards. Let the chips fall where they may. My weapons are not living up to the standards of the world. My weapons are different. My weapons are the righteous life, powered by the Holy Spirit, and endurance in the midst of suffering. Those are the weapons of the faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Our ministry, our life in Christ, is not legitimized by meeting the world's standards. The gospel story itself is the revelation of the character of God in the suffering and atonement of Jesus Christ. See, Christianity was born in suffering. And it persists in suffering. But real life requires real grace, that's for sure. And real life requires perseverance, that's absolutely true. But grace itself is a transforming power in the life of the believer. And that's what we need to understand this morning. That grace is not just something we receive, it transforms us and it changes us. Verse 11 says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. See, Paul recognizes that real grace produces open hearts. Real grace produces open hearts. I don't want to spend too much time on this point, but I think it was, it's worth making this morning. That because a lot of times we walk around and we have kind of a quid pro quo kind of attitude about life. Like, I do this for you, you do this for me, right? I'm going to extend grace to you so that you'll extend grace to me. But notice in, in the text, that's not what happens with Paul. He says, our mouths have been, you know, a more literal translation, our mouths have been opened to you. 
and our hearts have been open to you. You know, we talk about narrow-mindedness. Paul's saying we, our minds have been, we've had open minds to you and open mouths to you. But not only that, but our hearts have been open to you. We've extended grace to you, but you have not reciprocated. Now, he asks for that reciprocation in this case, but he doesn't require it. And as a matter of fact, he didn't wait until he received grace or he received forgiveness or he received something from them in order to extend it to them. As a matter of fact, if you look at the structure and the grammar of this sentence, the, the, the way the verb is used about, about being open-hearted, the way that's used is it's, it's a state of verb and it basically is saying, saying that this is the state of things. It's not something we did once. It's not something we will do in the future. It's, it's just the state of the way things are and the way we operate all the time. We always extend grace, and we don't require something in return. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow for a lot of us because many of us have been hurt by our parents, maybe a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a friend, a coworker, right? An ex-spouse, Something we, we can look back and we've, we've been hurt, we've been harmed, we've been attacked, we've been whatever. And we don't forgive because we want the quid pro quo. But that's not how God's grace works. It's not quid pro quo. And Paul doesn't do that with the church of Corinth. He says, I've extended this to you. I've been open mouthed with you. I've been open hearted with you. He certainly asks for it in return, but it's not quid pro quo. It's certainly legitimate at times to ask for, for that in return, but it's never legitimate to withhold it because you haven't received it. And Paul doesn't withhold it. He extends it. Too often we withhold an open heart towards others because we are afraid of being hurt. However, We must allow the power of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ to transform our hearts so that we will be open-hearted towards others regardless of whether they are going to reciprocate or not. Seems like Paul changes the subject all of a sudden and gets to verse 14, but he he doesn't, I don't think. It, It connects with what we've been talking about. So I want you to hang in there with me as we read the text and I will bring it around and connect it to the rest of the chapter in a moment, but this is what he says, starting in verse 14. He says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Real grace leads to authentic life with a singular focus. Real grace leads to authentic life with a singular focus. Now here's the thing, we, again, we got to go back to the, the city of Corinth, right? And where, where they worshiped many gods. They had influences from Egypt, and so there would be Egyptians got, gods there. You'd have, you, you'd have Roman gods there. It was kind of resettled by Romans, so you'd have that influence, and, and you'd, have, you'd also have, you know, the gods of, of Greece there as well. So you would actually go into Corinth, and you would find many of these gods from these different influences that they have had. Now, some were more prominent than others. And there was, a, there was often an expectation within those cultures that there were certain gods that kind of everybody worshipped. But then you could have these other gods on top of that, these secondary gods, if you will, that you also worshipped. And that was kind of the culture. As a matter of fact, Christians and Jews would be called atheists. 
because they only worshiped one God. And so they said, well, you only worship one God, you're practically an atheist. You're, you're almost there because everybody worships more than one God. And that was kind of the culture of the time. And it was, so, so Christians and, and, and Jews were kind of looked at as these weird people because they only had one God. And, and there was this culture of, of, of paganism and of, and of idol worship and, and all these different kinds of, of, of worship sites and temples and, and things like that that would be, that would be built. And, and they would go and they would worship these different gods. So this is the context in which Paul writes this. And you can imagine the church in Corinth, remember this is a place that attracted all kinds of people from different backgrounds because of its location and because of its opportunity for wealth. And so it would attract people from everywhere and they'd have all these different gods. And so people would come to know Jesus because the Christians would go out and say, hey, you need to know about this Jesus. And they would share the gospel. They would share God's grace. And then they would come into the church. But in their mind, there's nothing wrong with simply adding another God onto their shelf. Right? And so, and so the idea is this, that they would re- receive God's grace and that they would become a Christian, but it would just be an additional God. And so there was this idea that sometimes in, in certain parts of the world, this still happens, where you talk to like a Buddhist, for example, they don't have any problem with adding Jesus to their gods. The problem that they have is then getting rid of the others and only worshiping the one true God. And that was the problem in Corinth in many ways. And so Paul is writing this to them, and he basically says this, the chapter, chapter opened by receiving, you should not receive God's grace in vain, right? And one way to receive God's grace in vain is to maintain the culture and religious practices associated with worshiping idols even after you received the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Does that make sense? And so Paul is kind of coming around full circle and he has this phrase, and we've often heard this verse applied to marriage. Where, where we go, well, you're not supposed to be yoked with an unbeliever, so you shouldn't marry somebody, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you shouldn't marry somebody who's, who's not a believer. There's nothing wrong with that application, but I want you to notice something. Did you see the word marriage in this text anywhere? I didn't. It's not there. And I'm not, now I'm not saying that's a bad application. It's a good application. You combine it with other texts like 1 Corinthians 7 and things like that. We, le- we legitimately have reason to say that. You ought not... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought not marry somebody who's not. It leads to all kinds of problems. And, and 1 Corinthians 7 talks about some of those things. But that's not what this text is specifically talking about. It's a good application of this text, but it's broader. It transcends that. It ta- it's about other things as well, and we need to recognize that. Because sometimes we get too narrowly focused on one application and realizing that, oh, wait, this has other applications, other things that this is talking about. And Paul is certainly doing that, right? And so he says, don't yoke yourself to unbelievers in a way that divides your focus. In other words, when you receive the grace of Jesus Christ, when you come to Jesus Christ, that's it. That's your singular focus. Right? There isn't, there isn't other gods. There isn't idols. As a matter of fact, I'm going to Israel tomorrow. I leave, I leave to go to Israel tomorrow. It's, I'm really looking forward to the trip. I'm going, and my, my wife and my son, you don't see them here this morning because they're in Minnesota. They're hanging out with, with, with uh, my mother-in-law. Well, while I go to Israel, I know who got the better deal, right? But anyways, love my mother-in-law. That wasn't the point. Don't, all right? But I'm going to Israel, but the, what's the expectation? You, you know, you go somewhere without your family. What do you do? 
you buy stuff from that place, and then you bring it back, right? And then you put it on the shelf so that we can forget about it. That's what we do. Or you just Amazon Prime it, and then they can have it by, before you even get back, right? I mean, it came from Israel. What's the difference? Whatever the case might be, you go to Israel or you go to a place and you, and you buy stuff. I went to Costa Rica on a mission trip last year, right? I, went, I bought stuff home for my kids and my wife. You know, you do that kind of thing, right? But I put it on my shelf. Well, when you accept Jesus Christ, it's not something you put on the shelf with all your other stuff. That's not how that works. When you accept Jesus Christ, you don't put them on the shelf for one thing. But if you were going to put them on the shelf, you'd get rid of everything else on the shelf. It's Jesus Christ. It's the grace of the gospel. It's a singular focus. In other words, real grace leads to authentic life with a singular focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul uses this word belial, and it's a Hebrew word meaning worthless, but it, it was used in the intertestamental periods as the name for Satan. And so Paul is basically saying, look, you don't, you don't combine what you do, what you believe in, in Jesus Christ with other things. You don't get to combine those things. And so don't yoke yourself to those things. So that could have all, all kinds of implications, business implications, certainly marriage-type implications. But it can have even other implications, like what clubs you're a part of, what, what societies and things like that you're a part of, the decisions that you make, that you yoke yourself, that you connect yourself to outside of the church. Because if those things take your focus off Jesus Christ or draw you away from the righteous life of Jesus Christ, then you're unequally yoked. Yesterday at my house, uh, I, was, I was out and about in the morning and like I said, my wife and my son are gone, and so it's me. It was me and Matthias uh, in, in the house the last couple of days, and and Matthias texts me um, about eleven o'clock ish yesterday morning, and he says, "Hey, Champ, that's our that's our uh, our boxer. Champ is his name. He's our boxer, our dog." And he, Champ th- threw up behind your your chair in the living room. I did the best I could. I don't know what you want me to do, so I come out. I was at the gym at the time, so I come out. And I, that's what I see on my phone. I just, t- I just text him. I go, hey, man, I'm on my way. I'll be home. So I get home, and he had to go. I don't remember where we went, work or something. And, and I come in, and sure enough, there's, you know, the spot, and he picked it up for the most part. But obviously, the stain was still there. And I've been wanting to shampoo our carpets for a really long time. But we just have so much traffic in our house all the time, right? We got, you know, my son, and he's got friends over, and my wife's there, and I'm there, and Matthias is there, and, and all these kinds of things. And, and uh, Megan Coleman, by the way, will, I think she'll be back here next Sunday, I think. She'll be here next Sunday. And because uh, she's going to rent a room at our house and live with us for a while. So that's, she's coming later this week and those kinds of things. And so, so I'm like, oh, goodness. Okay, so here's my, here's my chance. Matthias is gone at work. I'm going to shampoo the carpets. And so I went and I rented a carpet cleaner, the machine, not a person, right? You don't rent people. I was told that wasn't okay. I, I tried to rent the person, and they, they wouldn't give them to me. So I just re- I rented the, shamp- the machine from King Supers, right? Got the stuff, brought it home, and I, I'm like, I'm shampooing the carpet. And so I took a couple hours, and I'm shampooing the carpet and all these things. But I got three dogs, which I wouldn't mind just having two. So if anybody wants a black lab, you can have them. And now is the perfect time because my wife is gone. And she can be mad at me because she'll get, she'll get back before I do, and then I come back a few days later. So she get home, re- realize it, and then I get home a few days later, and she has a few days to cool off before I get home. So, so just text me if you want a black lab. But anyways, I've got three dogs, so that was the biggest problem. Like, how do I shampoo the carpet and keep the dogs off it so that it's, you know, it's clean? 
And what happened yesterday afternoon? Do you guys remember? It rained yesterday, right? It rained. And so here I am. I shampooed the carpet, and our carpet's not in amazing shape anyways. But I shampooed it, tried to get it nice and as clean as I could, and, you know, worked on some spots and actually, you know, made the stains a little bit dimmer, you know, that kind of thing. Like, that's, that's my goal is to make the stains dimmer. And so I made the stains dimmer and that kind of thing. And, and uh, man, oh, man, that water was nasty too when I vacuumed that stuff up. But anyway, so here I am. So I'm, I, I just put the dogs outside and left them outside for most of the day. But then it, it comes time and, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, it's going to rain. And then I got to bring the dogs in. So I, so I do. I bring them in. You know, and it was mostly dry by this time, but it was still slightly damp. But, you know, what are you going to do? You do the best you can, right? And so, so I have them in the house. And then it rains. And our, our do- we have three big dogs, right? We have a German short hair. We have a black lab, and we have a boxer, and they tear up the backyard. So the backyard is basically dirt. So rain plus dirt equals mud. That was our backyard yesterday afternoon. And so then I'm like, okay, now what am I going to do? Because the dogs eventually have to go back outside because they have to, you know, go to the bathroom. And those kinds of things, they got just like the rest of us, right? You just can't keep them inside forever. And so I'm so I kept them inside as long as I could so that they couldn't go outside and track everything in. But eventually I got to let them out. So I let them out and I shut the door and then I go and I find a towel that I find, like I put it on a, a mat on the, on the floor by the patio door and I get the towel and it's all there and I'm going to let them in one by one and, you know, flip them over, right? Which they hate. Well, at least one of them hates it. You know, flip them over and they're like, Rah! you know, and they're punching you in the face and you're like trying to get the towel on there. So I, and I, so, so I do and I let them in but why am I going to all this trouble? I wipe out their paws, right? Make sure they're not muddy. I check all four of them, fighting with the dog. The dog's scratching me. Why am I doing this? Because I just cleaned the carpet. And I don't want the mud mixed with the clean carpet, right? Now, here's the thing. When we receive the grace of Jesus Christ, what does it do to our hearts? It cleanses it. It makes it clean. If we go to that much trouble to keep the dirt from coming onto our carpet, how much more should we protect our heart and the dirt in the world from coming into our heart? That's what Paul is talking about when he says, don't be unequally yoked. Because God gives us a clean heart, a heart of flesh. He takes away the heart of stone, gives the heart of flesh, and that is what we are supposed to do. You want to have grace in your life, but it's supposed to transform you and help you to live an authentic life so that you can be singularly focused on Jesus Christ because of this brand new clean heart that you have. So don't be unequally yoked. Protect it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace that you have given us. God, you've given us a heart of flesh, a clean heart. God, I pray, I pray that as we become 